0: Hello, thank you for tuning in to our Empire Lecture Series podcast. We hope this podcast finds you well, whether you're driving to work, between cases, or adding some education to your workout. Remember that all of these lectures are also available on our website and YouTube channel. And if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars and subscribe. Happy listening.
1: So everyone logged in, we're up to got 80 people here with us.
0: Oh, perfect. Yep. Yeah. All right. So what we'll be talking about, of course, today is posterior urethral valves. We'll start out simply with a little bit of embryology and then work through the entire talk. Um, in the middle of the talk is a video, which runs about five minutes. It'll give you time for a bathroom break, an extra cup of coffee or whatnot. Um, if, but it is a, a, a video, and we can, um, if uh, somebody chimes in, let's skip ahead, then we can certainly do that. The only other thing that I want to mention that we're not going to probably touch on today, um, unless we have extra time at the end, is uh, prenatal intervention. It's a talk in and of itself. I have uh, included my slides at the end of this talk uh, for your perusal if you um, would like that update, and uh, certainly I'm happy by email to answer any questions. So we'll start out with embryology. So as you know, uh, we, the cloaca gets divided about week 5 to 7, and it's the migration of the orifices of the Wolfian ducts from the anterolateral position of the cloaca to Muller's tubercle on the posterior wall of the UGS, which is important with regard to valves. This migration path is normally lateral and posterior. The normal remnants leave the inferior urethral crest on the floor of the posterior urethra and the plicae colliculi. When the insertion of the Wolfian ducts into the cloaca is anomalous or a little too far anterior, as we think, uh, the migration then results in the formation of abnormal ridges, um, which are what we term valves. So what are valves? They're a hypertrophy variant of the inferior urethral crest formed by the insertion of the distal ends of the Wolfian ducts, again, into the intralateral walls of the cloaca. The actual leaves arise from the very and then course interiorly, uh, infused in the midline. I use my hands for this. Um, and, it's the, it, and the valves are seen just proximal to the external sphincter. Um, and that proximity is important with valve ablation, uh, in, and it's important to distinguish the two, um, two uh, structures and uh, only ablate the valves. Um, Hugh Hampton-Young, uh, published in the Journal of Urology in nineteen nineteen uh, these um, uh, schematics of the type 1 valves which show the leaflets emanating from the vari uh, posteriorly and meeting in the, in the again meeting in the um, midline at twelve o 'clock. Uh, type twos are not of a great clinical importance. Type three are an angular, um, uh, annular um, um, abnormality. Uh, with a central area, and uh, these can be located anywhere within the posterior urethra. What do we uh, know about valves as far as the detection rate? Uh, They're detected in 1 in 12, um, in uh, 1,250 ultrasound screenings. About 50% of valves are detected prenatally. And while I'm on that fact, then what about the other 50%? The other 50% are usually uh, detected through... uh, 25% with urinary tract infection, and uh, 25% with other findings, which we'll discuss as the talk proceeds. Posterior urethral valves uh, account for about 10% of obstructive uropathy diagnosed prenatally. The incidence is one to two in 10,000 live births. In the US, we expect to see three to 500 cases annually, with about a third of these going on to uh, end stage renal disease. Posteronethral valves may be associated with chromosome 11 and copy number variants since the affected sibs share a partial duplication in the short arm of chromosome 11. So what about the pathophysiology of valves? This, um, this um, schematic shows uh, the vicious cycle involved in the uh, development of the valve bladder. That's a term coined by Mike Mitchell uh, many, many years ago. Uh, You start out with partial uh, bladder outlet obstruction prenatally. You develop some mild detrusor hypertrophy and high voiding pressures, preserving near complete bladder emptying um, early on, and that's the compensated phase. Then the bladder wall undergoes remodeling with collagen deposition um, and hypoxic changes from stretch, and uh, this um, then leads to decreased compliance in the bladder, increased post void residuals and elevated storage pressures. There's increased renal pelvic pressures uh, leading to more tubular damage, which then leads to polyuria uh, due to renal dysplasia and glomerular and tubular damage. The kidneys just can't concentrate. The bladder uh, can't keep pace with the functional demands and then the, the um, voiding pressures become elevated you have elevated resting pressures with increased post-void residuals, hydronephrosis and further renal damage. And that's the decompensated phase. And this just keeps going on and on. I did some work with uh, Andy Friedman, who's at Cedar, Sinai's, Cedar sinai uh, many, many years ago on valve bladders that he brought to us from uh, sick kids and showed that um, there is um, increase in muscle but equal increase in collagen. So it's, it's just a lot of everything um, that develops over time, but it isn't like the bladder, which is totally disorganized. The prenatal ultrasound findings include echogenic or more white kidneys as compared to liver, uh, cortical cysts, lack of corticomedullary differentiation, which you can see here, uh, hydronephrosis, hydroureter, distended bladder with or without algal and symmetric thickening of the bladder wall. We talk about symmetric thickening because there's asymmetric thickening in prune belly syndrome. The keyhole sign has been described to help us with the phenotype uh, prenatally. Uh, that's seen in valves and urethral atresia. It is not seen in uh, prune belly syndrome. Reflux, neurogenic bladder, the megacystis microcolon syndrome, which is um, fairly rare, and cloacal anomalies. Uh, fetal MRI, I've put this in here. This is a very old fetal MRI, and we really can't get a lot of information from it. You see a big bladder and, and dilated kidneys. We the ureters may be hiding behind the bladder, but with um, a new and improved MRI, uh, we can even find a, a keyhole sign. Um, in in the studies, but um, usually unnecessary as a as an adjunct. Sorry, I've got a fast finger. So, what about the uh, mortality morbidity in, involved in um, these prenatally diagnosed cases? There's 30 to 50 percent mortality, and if oligohydramnios is present, that it's as high as 77 percent. If oligohydramnios is present in the second trimester. This portends a poor prognosis. Fetal obstruction affects lung development. And it's important to remember that the kidney or metanephric urine production starts at about 12 weeks. The fetal contribution to amniotic fluid begins after 18 weeks. And normal amniotic fluid is essential to bronchial branching, especially during the critical canalicular phase between 16 and 28 weeks. Oligohydramnios is associated with pulmonary hypoplasia and an arrest of normal lung development, resulting in abnormally low numbers uh, or size of the bronchopulmonary segments or alveoli. And that's why this uh, time frame is so important. And as I said, we're not going to get into prenatal intervention, but the time frame is very important to restoring amniotic fluid. You look at uh, um, an interesting study uh, by Mark Johnson and the um, North American Fetal Therapy Network group. There are about 11 centers in that group. This, This study was published in 2018. They looked at fetuses with lower urinary tract and normal or slightly reduced amniotic fluid who were thought to have a better prognosis. So these centers evaluate the outcome of lower urinary tract obstruction with normal AFP at mid-gestation. Of the 32 patients with lower urinary tract obstruction and normal AFP at 24 weeks, followed at these centers for uh, a period of about five years, 56% of them had a final diagnosis of posterior urethral valves. So making the diagnosis is sometimes hard and difficult um, uh, because the phenotype is not not always straightforward um, uh, by ultrasound. Gestational age at delivery was 37, uh, plus or minus almost three weeks, and the mean creatinine at discharge was 1.2, uh, plus or minus 0.8 milligrams per deciliter. Mineral replacement therapy uh, was needed in 32 with intervention early, uh, with the median age of those babies being 3.75 months. So, how do, do uh, what is the clinical presentation of valves um, in? Uh, prenatally and also postnatally. Abdominal mass is certainly one. Um, ascites is seen in this uh, x-ray here, KUB, and uh, fe- uh, respiratory distress and spontaneous pneumothorax. Uh, early demise um, um, is, is usually secondary to pulmonary hypoplasia. Infants in the old days, when I was a resident, um, came in with urinary sepsis, dehydration, electrolyte imbalance, and failure to thrive. That was not unusual in 1982 uh, when I was at, at uh, in urology at Johns Hopkins. Uh, toddlers and school-age boys: urinary tract infection and persistent problems with incontinence, nocturnal enuresis, or voiding dysfunction. So what is the first uh, steps in management of the neonate? Um, One, their respiratory status, of course, is addressed uh, from the urologic standpoint. We drain the bladder with a 5 French feeding tube, and we never put in a Foley catheter um, since the balloon can obstruct the ureteral orifices and also cause bladder spasm. Um, We correct the fluid and electrolyte imbalances. They often have a metabolic acidosis, polyuria, and uh, antibiotics are instituted, usually amoxicillin. And then there's serial monitoring of the serum creatinine. And the creatinine should really drop in a couple of days. It first reflects that of the mothers and should not be on uptrending. What are the postnatal sonographic findings? Well, abnormal echogenicity is seen here. Um, cortical cysts, there's some small cysts seen here. Lack of corticomedullary differentiation. Uh, we can all see that these are calices, not medulla, and um, there's uh, no, no medulla scene. Um, hydronephrosis, hydroureter, elevated bladder neck, dilated posterior urethra, and bladder wall thickening. Um, the bladder wall is thick when distended and, three, and, and measures three millimeters, and if the bladder is empty, five millimeters is considered thickening. I'm going to make one point now, and that is to never forget uh, the following. Um, uh, Just a small anecdotal story, but it stood the test of time. Um, I was at the city hospital, and uh, Bob just asked me, well, how are things going out there? Are you seeing anything interesting? I said, well, you know, they're calling us for medical renal disease. He says, well, tell me about the patient. And I went on to say that the patient had an elevated creatinine but no hydronephrosis and pretty bad looking kidneys. He said, "Well, what did the VCG show?" And I stood there, of course, dumbfounded. And in fact, this baby had um, valves, and the there was no dilation because the urine output was so poor, and the kidneys were so bad. So uh, never um, when spontaneous pneumothorax. Um, um, I, I, I forgot one point there that the baby had spontaneous pneumothorax, that that is a buzzword even to this day when patients tell me that their child had a spontaneous pneumothorax. Um, I've not picked up another valve that way, but it's very important to remember that hydronephrosis is what we all remember, but sometimes the kidneys are just so sick, they're not hydronephrotic. ECUGs, Um, they are classic findings, uh, but you need to make sure that your radiologist is going to give you the proper study. And that is, is that they not only fill the bladder, but that they remove the catheter so you can view the entire urethra uh, without the catheter in place, or at least pull back into the anterior urethra. The valves appear um, as sharp perpendicular or oblique lucencies as seen here. You have a dilated, elongated urethra, as seen here, a trabeculated bladder with diverticula and uh, cellulite, and there is bladder neck hypertrophy, seen here. What you don't see is what's what's hypertrophied, and uh, reflux is seen in about 50%. We'll talk a little more about reflux in a moment. I've put in this slide about prune belly syndrome so that you don't get this wrong, although there is not a radiology section anymore, I think, on the boards. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, to absolutely know that this does not represent valves, even though there's a dilated posterior urethra, because of course, prune bellies will have hydroureterine nephrosis and often are mistaken prenatally for valves. And again, a dilated urethra here, and I've just put a valve urethra back in just as a reminder some patients will have urinomas uh, considered pop-offs. Many can be observed. This bladder, this bladder, this kidney is decompressed. It's a sagittal view. And the urinoma is sitting subcapsularly. And here's another subcapsular um, uh, uh, urinoma. Most of them do not need to be addressed uh, unless there's increasing size, increasing serum creatinine, infection, hypertension, or parenchymal compression. And they can be addressed percutaneously or, or primarily percutaneously. Vesco-ureteral reflux is present again in 50%. It's not a predictor of renal function. 20% uh, resol- resolves at, resolve after the outlet obstruction is relieved and uh, may be related to the function of the involved kidney. If reflux persists, this may definitely reflect bladder dysfunction. So let's talk a little bit about pop-off valves. Reflux is considered one, a diverticula, large diverticula, a patent eurachis, and urinomas. We don't see many patent eurachises with valves, primarily prune belly, but uh, occasionally with valves. Uh, These are thought to protect the bladder. So when a study was done many, many years ago, they, um, of 71% with one or more pop-offs, 87% had favorable urodynamics. Only 55% of patients without a pop-off had favorable urodynamics. And of those patients without a pop-off and unfavorable urodynamics, five of seven underwent augmentation cystoplasty. Um, It's certainly my bias to know that when when I see a pop-off, those patients usually have a better looking bladder, but certainly not always. Bird syndrome is an important one to know. Um, it's valves, unilateral, reflux dysplasia. The kidneys are non-functioning. Um, they the this the this non-functioning unit acts as a major pop-off. Um, and we thought it was a good thing. But um, a study back in the late 90s showed that 67% of these uh, babies will have initially normal creatinine, but only 30% will have a normal creatinine by age eight to ten years. Uh, they can be a source of infection. Uh, they may need to be removed. Um, one needs to um, uh, consider using, using the ureter as an augmentation for small bladder capacity or a bladder with decreased compliance. And the important point also is, is that um, if you're leaving that in place you can, and you think that it's a great pop-off, you can't be cavalier about not following carefully, the uh, contralateral non-refluxing kidney, because these are at at high risk for scarring, and of course, close follow-up is recommended. Treatment options, primary valve ablation, um, I've put in primarily the large letters, and as you can see at the the bottom of the slide, uh, vesicostomy and supravesical diversion. We use these less and less and less, but they are still in our armamentarium for some special infants. Um, primary valve ablations performed at 5 and 7, and I happen to really like the 12 o'clock position, but I, I we do do the leaflets initially at 5 and 7. Um, you can use a cold knife, Collins knife with diathermy, homeon laser, a, a wire through a three-french catheter, Bugbee three-french, or my favorite uh, tool is uh, this little um, um, ball that is 180 degrees turned on itself, and you um, um, Uh, I use the uh, wolf cyst, happen to use a wolf cystoscope. Stortz is also excellent. uh, And um, only the cutting current is used. Um, Studies have shown it really doesn't matter if it's hot or cold uh, ablation, so to speak. But what I like about this little ball electrode is that as I'm working at 12 o'clock, I should say the residents now that we are able to do this indirectly, um, the and you, you form a trough at uh, twelve o'clock, and then you stay in the trough. And you don't wander, um, but then when you see the pink fibers of the um, of the urethra, then uh, the um, uh, you'll get a little bit of bleeding, and then you can use a little bit of coag uh, with this ball to um, to uh, take care of that. Uh, I leave a catheter in place, um, and I'll talk about post op follow up, but. I am probably the only human being maybe even in the world that does the VCUG the next day. Um, it only takes one case, it was from elsewhere, who thought they had the valve ablated and then a child moved from one area to another and um, couldn't understand, I couldn't understand why they were doing so poorly. Of course, we uh, had been doing so poorly and we got a VCUG and they had residual leaflets. So I never overestimate my ability. <laughs> Uh, And uh, always, I get a a simple VCUG the next day. Um, uh, Studies um, have shown varied uh, uh, outcomes. uh, uh, Back in 1996, Kim from Downstate showed no difference if you did any one of these procedures or how you did them. Uh, And uh, Claire Close, back in 1997, it's in Seattle, uh, showed that uh, felt that ablation was superior. Um, There is one. diversion that is worth mentioning, and that's a sober anti ureterostomy. I have done, I have an N of 1, so it's not done very often. Uh, It's performed at the time of valve ablation. It's rapid, and you uh, are able to decompress the upper tract by having a um, um, side port here, a ureterostomy, and then you do a um, a, a end end to side uh, anastomosis, and then the urine has the ability to drain into the bladder uh, so that the bladder is not left defunctionalized. And um, we did that when a little guy whose creatinine rose to 3.5 and uh, stayed there. And it was a great way to temporize. This, let's see if this works. Give me a moment. Uh, if it doesn't, then let's go on. It worked at home, Um, but it's a video, so maybe it'll work on a smaller scale. Um, Pre- and uh, post-valve ablations, uh, appearance of the urethra. Well, here's the pre-op study. And, And if you look carefully, the tube is in, okay? But I can see that there's just a commissure here, and this is open. And of course, 24 hours later, there's going to be edema, There's going to be residual posterior urethral dilation that may persist for many, many years, Um, but you have a sense that you've gotten the job done and and, uh, I think that it's worth doing. You have to get your catheter out anyway. You might as well put some contrast in it and do a fast fast VCUG. Uh, Complications of valve ablation are are not many if you're careful, uh, but you do need to make sure you've done a complete resection um, incontinence uh, can occur, especially if you, uh, if, uh, if, you, um, if you violate the bladder neck and external sphincter uh, and uh, also long-term urethral stricture. It's, um, it's not a huge area, although the posterior urethra is dilated at that time. But we are always very careful of identifying the Vera montanum and knowing the ejaculatory ducts are close by. Interestingly, I'll make an aside uh, that uh, long-term fertility uh, is not a big problem with these folks, so uh, we must be doing something right with regard to staying away from the ejaculatory ducts. Uh, Prognosis. So for many, many, I've had this slide for so many years, um, and the number changed from 0.8 to 1.0, but importantly, the natal creatinine um, at a year needs to be... Uh, one or less than one, uh, the lower the better, of course, and that's associated with good prognosis. Uh, when it's greater than one, it's usually associated with progressive renal failure and the need for replacement therapy. Um, so this is hot off the press. I have had some time to read the journal. This is April 2020. It shows the, it was a randomized study showing the effect of early. Uh, looking at the effect of early oxybutin treatment on posturethral valve outcomes in infants. There has been a lot of anecdotal use of oxybutin. We've all used it from time to time in various settings when we're concerned about the, the appearance of the upper tracts, um, but we know that the valve resection has been complete. Um, there, this uh, trial invo- involved uh, 49 infants under the age of 12 months of age, and uh, they uh, all had undergone primary endoscopic valve ablation. 24 patients were randomized to oxybutynin using this dose, uh, 0.2 milligrams per kilogram, which is the standard dose, given three times a day until they were either potty trained versus the 25 patients who were in the observation group. The study endpoints were serum creatinine, um, estimated uh, GFR, decreased hydronephrosis, reflux resolution, febrile UTI, and potty training. So uh, five kids needed to, five infants, needed to uh, discontinue their uh, therapy because of adverse uh, side effects. Facial flushing, as we know, is a normal side effect, but uh, it was stopped in two children. Bladder and upper tract dilation appeared to worsen in two children, and cognitive changes in one patient And so the drug was discontinued. Early oxybutynin was shown to improve hydronephrosis and reflux. Um, It had no effect on the incidence of febrile UTI, completion of potty training, or the age at which the child potty trained. Nocturnal bladder decompression is also another uh, part of our armamentarian in in kids with uh, hydronephrosis, hydrauridor, and incomplete bladder emptying uh, despite valve resection. Uh, the, we want to avoid the this uh, vicious cycle of, and the development of bla- uh, valve bladders caused by chronic overdistension um, during sleep due to polyuria, impaired bladder sensation, and residual urine. So we ask parents to place a catheter. It's not such an easy ordeal because these are sensate urethras, high bladder necks. Sometimes it's difficult to to pass the catheters, and frequent nocturnal double uh, voiding also can be um, a, an alternative to catheter placement. Uh, chronic hydronephrosis is improved or resolved in all in this study, and creatinine improved in about a third. This was uh, a study out of Steve Coffey. who was always a, a, a great in, innovator, and uh, you can, and this is, uh, we still use this in, 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 in many different types of hydronephrosis, valves and other uh, patients other types of patients. Um, Postremutral valves again we see this uh, prenatally diagnosed and we uh, take care of the, the infants postnatally but some infants will present uh, at a later age or at, um, at or during childhood. They are managed in a similar fashion. Uh, they will undergo primary valve ablation I it's not been necessary to divert them in any other way. Um, but the key for all of these patients is really lifelong urologic, lifelong urologic, and nephrologic follow-up. It's really, really important. Many, many, many of these patients are lost when they seemingly are doing well, and it's important that they stay connected to us and, and or urology um, and it, it, well, lifelong. I want to take a moment to just make a comment about the drained bladder, um, which is which is pertinent for all Probably all patients with valves. So, after you drain a valve bladder, it's still palpable. It isn't enlarged up to the umbilicus, possibly, but it's still palpable because of its thick wall, uh, thickened wall. And so, uh, sometimes when we're asked to see patients and there's hydra ureterinephrosis prenatally, we may not know much about the patient. We really, in our hearts, don't think they're a valve. Do go by and do physical exam not only percuss the lower abdomen, but in in a newborn, um, you just feel around the rectus, there's no fat, feel around the rectus uh, uh, muscles. And uh, I can still remember watching Bob Jeffs do this and each of us feeling um, a valve bladder with a catheter in it. So uh, next time you have a valve, um, please do physical exam. We forget that It's, it's really a still important skill um, let me make sure, yes. So prognosis in these patients, we have, there's many, many studies. There are so many studies on prognosis, but it seems that we've come to agree that not, it's not related to the age of diagnosis, initial management, reflux status, urinary tract infection status, or hypertension. We do know that it's all about the bladder. Favorable pro- prognosis occurs when daytime urinary continence is achieved by age five, Certainly, the, ref- the bladder is a reflection of this whole problem. So um, the, um, that is really uh, something to hang your hat on. Um, most of the pop-off mechanisms are um, uh, have been found to be helpful for the most part. What about delayed presentation of urethral valves? There were two papers that came out a number of years ago. This, had, this manuscript had 47 patients. Uh, age 5 to 35 years, who were found to have valves. They presented with daytime incontinence, urinary tract infection, and voiding pain. The hydronephrosis was found in 40% and reflux in 33%. The creatinine was increased in about a third, and 10% had end-stage renal disease. If a VCUG was performed for only abnormal sonos or urinary tract infection, 30% would not have been diagnosed. So um, it's a broad statement about recommending VCUGs and boys with vo- voiding complaints, especially associated with daytime incontinence or urinary tract infection. Uh, we, our ultrasound has improved considerably, but certainly when there, uh, when in doubt, a VCUG is certainly indicated. Another study, uh, similar study about delayed presentation uh, in valves, looked at 70 boys, mean age 7. Uh, for six years, uh, they had dysfunctional voiding. The most common signs and symptoms were nocturnal enuresis. Gosh, how much nocturnal enuresis uh, certainly do we all in pediatric urology see? Urinary frequency. I write a lot of Ditropan for regular kids. Urinary tract infection or microhematuria. So um, we need to always think outside the box. Uh, in addition, uh, despite their adequate resection. Once they were diagnosed, 63% had persistent voiding dysfunction. So what do we know about the aerodynamic patterns? Um, in infancy, the, hyper, the, the bladder is usually hypercontractile and has low bladder capacity. During the first few years, there's instability and emptying difficulty. Uh, that, uh, small frequent voids usually occur. And puberty, uh, that they get, shall we say, burnout increased bladder capacity, and 50% have either poor detritus or contractions or myogenic failure related to polyuria and also related to that initial schematic uh, showing the vicious cycle. Um, And so what do we know about urinary incontinence in some of the older kids? 50% of boys with valves have ongoing daytime incontinence into late childhood. Significant urinary a- abnormalities were present about 55% and may persist following relief of bladder outlet obstruction, including myogenic failure with overflow incontinence, uninhibited detrusor contractions, high pressure voiding secondary to persistent valve leaflets, uh, stress incontinence, and um, as as coined by uh, Mike Mitchell, the valve bladder syndrome. And that includes uh, poor, that, that really is similar to what we think of as a non-neurogenic neurogenic bladder, poorly compliant bladder from fibrosis due to chronic obstruction. And it can lead to secondary ureteral obstruction with worsening hydro nephrosis if the bladder pressures are greater than 35 to 40 centimeters of water. Um, You can start with treatment uh, using anticholinergics, but then many of the patients uh, may have a better dynamic picture with with regard to compliance and overactivity um, but they will uh, require intermittent catheterization usually for voiding I am not a big valsalva fan um, I always say that that credate and Valsalva all went out with the Etzel none of you are old enough listening to know what the Etzel was but Valsalva is um, it, it, it's rare that everything lines up to empty the bladder well with valsalva empty the bladder efficiently and effectively. Um, augmentation is uh, still um, a part of the armamentarian, and, and a catheterizable stoma can be added to that for ease of catheterization. Uh, in my 30 years, uh, here, at 26 years here, I have never augmented a valve. Uh, so I'm not sure how important it is, uh, and uh, m- most of the kids do well if you uh, just work on it, and they work on it. Not all, but many. Um, urinary incontinence into adulthood. So that can be multifactorial. There can be sphincteric injury, overflow, overactive bladder with small, probably small um, capacity or functional capacity bladders, reduced bladder sensation, uh, nephrogenic DI. Um, it causes frequent voiding and nocturia, voiding dysfunction. And so it's really important um, before one does or considers doing a bladder neck incision, is one, a trial of, anti, uh, of alpha antagonists. Or um, with your urodynamics, it's a must to document these elevated voiding pressures with a closed bladder neck during the voiding phase. Uh, you really want to be careful about cutting the bladder neck. Um, urethral structure is possible, but not common. So let's talk a little bit about end stage uh, renal disease and renal transplant. Proteinuria in infancy is related to a worse prognosis. Hyperfiltration leads to proteinuria and focal segmental glomerulosclerosis and renal failure. So when you look at boys with valves and proteinuria, 79%, it was found in 79% with chronic renal failure versus only 17% had proteinuria and normal renal function. After age five, bladder compliance and stability were more favorable for transplant. Graft survival, patient survival, serum creatinine, and boys with posterior valves were equal to those without a history of valves due to more meticulous attention to bladder dysfunction and its treatment. Um, in valves with, uh, there was a study that uh, was uh, performed uh, v- fairly recently with. A a small number of patients, though, that had undergone augmentations, and they were concerned about the effect of chronic infection in patients who were immunosuppressed. And uh, they found that it really did not negatively impact rare function or survival uh, versus that of controls. Um, In the Journal of Urology in the last two or three months, there is an article that somewhat disputes this. It says that infection is bad, but interestingly, was there were more infections in the non-neurologic transplanted patients than in the urologic transplanted patients and they did not look at augmentations uh, specifically. So um, that story may still be told but I think that these words meticulous attention to bladder dysfunction and its treatment is really the key to this uh, talk this morning. Um, Lastly, long-term risks of end-stage renal disease in 2011 Uh, They um, um, reported the outcomes in um, almost 200 patients with uh, valves over a very long period of time, very long period of different treatment times. Um, The median age uh, was 31 years, and uh, 23% progressed to end-stage renal disease. The lifetime risk for end-stage renal disease in this cohort was um, almost 30%. The time to progression to end-stage renal disease correlated with the lowest serum creatinine value during the first post-op year. And of 44 patients progressing to end-stage renal disease, uh, almost 70% progress before the age of 17 years. So many studies have suggested it's a lower, it's a, a lower stage, a growing, the growing stage, the adolescent years that are that are the um, uh, game changers for many patients. Um, 31% of the patients were more than uh, older than 34 years and did not have end-stage renal disease. And I'm going to skip down to this line that says no patient progressed to end-stage renal disease after their mid-30s. So that's a, a, a good fact to know in patients that you've been following. Um, increased renal uh, risk of end-stage renal disease was associated with early presentation pneumothorax, bilateral vesco reflux, and recurrent UTI fo- following valve ablation. So let me just see. I will take four minutes <laughs> um, to just talk briefly. I'll just talk very briefly. Uh, first of all, um, bef- a little bit about prenatal intervention. Uh, I- I'm certainly not the expert, um, but uh, have certainly read a lot. As you know, sometimes um, there's, uh, the oligohydromnias really doesn't um, let you know too much about the uh, fetus to begin with. You need to determine the gender of the patient before you um, start intervening because obviously um, valves only occur in males. Uh, the, there are associated anomalies present in 17 to 30% of fetuses with obstructive uropathy. Um, most of you who are residents or have taken your boards or are taking your boards need to know these prognostic parameters here. They'll be in the slides and they're in every major textbook for um, poor prognostic parameters. And you just need to flip the greater than to a less than sign for the good prognostic uh, parameters. And as you know, let me skip that, that uh, sometimes you need to do serial measurements because the first measurement may um, uh, show, shall we say, old numbers. And by immune, uh, by infusing saline or um, uh, to receive the fetus or um, doing the ves- uh, vescovacentesis uh, two or three times at, at uh, seven, 48 to seventy two interval hour intervals, uh, you may uh, determine that the the uh, fetal renal function is actually favorable. Okay. Um, So what I want to come down to is uh, there are many complications of all of these interventions. Um, The UCSF uh, treatment algorithm is, I think, really stood the test of time as to what to do and when to progress and when to um, uh, try to um, uh, mature lungs and early deliver. I mean, we try not to uh, trade uh, early delivery and prematurity um, so that you really need to uh, walk a fine line. Uh, and but what I want to just talk move into is this is just a note about the Pluto study. So people were doing um, uh, vescoamnionic shunts, but there was really a lack of evidence regarding fetal drainage, And the Pluto trial was um, a randomized controlled trial comparing the effects of um, intervention versus no intervention. Long story short, the the data was not as good as we would have liked because they had trouble enrolling patients. But the data suggests that improved perinatal survival um, uh, will will occur with intervention, but there was unfortunately no difference in the incidence of end-stage renal disease. And that was the conclusion that Holmes and Baskin came to many, many years ago from the UCSF data um, uh, originally from the Harrison group, that we get these patients to survive, get them to birth, but um, the incidence of end-stage renal disease really isn't affected. Um, fetal endoscopy has been a plus. We're now able, to, uh, we, <laughs> they are able to do this. Um, uh, with expertise, and it helps really with the determination of the phenotype so you know if you're dealing with a valve or not. So that's one important issue. It has been shown that um, uh, fetal uh, endoscopic ablation uh, does have probably a little edge on when, um, when, um, when, uh, not only survival rate as, uh, as VAS does, but it also may have a, a, an edge on uh, renal function, um, uh, not real function, uh, and, uh, at, uh, the, and at, uh, when the original studies were looked at. The, the um, folks at um, Baylor, we should keep our eye on them. They are doing some wonderful studies, trying to really um, uh, ca- uh, stage uh, valves uh, and in order to determine who really should get a shunt. So we're not mixing apples with oranges and pears. And I think that once that is done and looked at more carefully, um, that shunting uh, may um, be uh, back in vogue and, uh, and really have greater, greater, um, uh, greater success with regard to possible improvement in renal in, in function instead of taking all comers. So this staging has been uh, proposed. But I think that's pretty much it. I've summarized these. I left the slides pretty beefy. Um, so that, uh, you know, you can read through them without um, uh, just a few words and, and, and go from there. Nothing, uh, there's no free lunch for any of these, uh, any of these um, interventions. And so um, you really need to s- uh, carefully select uh, patients um, if you are going to intervene for oligohydramnios and bilateral um, hydro nephrosis and distended bladder. And I think that's, that's it. Good.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Shapiro. That was a really excellent talk. Great review. Um, Like I said at the beginning, this is a super high yield topic for in-service exams and board exams. Uh, Those pictures you showed of the, of the keyhole sign, I've seen multiple (laughs) on multiple in-services. And um, the other thing that tends to come up are the, um, the stages of bladder dysfunction um, as children age with uh, posterior urethral valves. So your, your overview of those was great. There are a couple of questions that have shown up in the chat. And if anyone has any more, they can put them in there now. Um, one person asked, what is the role of CIC training before transplant plus or minus augmentation in posterior urethral valves? What do you tend to favor? And what do you think about uh, augmentation before transplant or augmentation after transplant, et cetera?
0: We have, the patients that I've augmented prior to transplant have not been valves, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, um, we have a fellow, he's my oldest patient in my practice. I met him as a teenager, he had lupus, uh, presented with lupus encephalopathy. And I augmented him prior to his transplant. Um, the transplant's now many, I don't know, so many years. Um, but, um, so, I've not, I don't think that every patient going, you know, the numbers in that augmentation study were pretty low. I mean, I'm 30 years and I've not augmented a patient. I love to operate. It's not like we haven't augmented people. We're doing so many less because of Ditropan and Ditropan XL. And I think because we have such better pharmacotherapy that we're doing much better. Um, I I don't know what we, maybe it's something in the water in Brooklyn, but um, we have one patient in 30, 26 years at NYU in Bellevue. Bellevue is my big valve group because um, they come in from many of the HCC hospitals and we, uh, you know, we, we, they come in threes usually. So, uh, but nonetheless, most of those kids are progressing with their uh, potty training, and only one is actually on intermittent cath. So I don't think there's a lot. I mean, it's, I, I think if they didn't need intermittent cath pre-op, there's unlikelihood that they'll need a post-op.
1: Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, two people actually asked about uh, what are your criteria for um, Proceeding to vesicostomy, and if so, choosing between a vesicostomy and a ureterostomy in cases where uh, valves are either unable to be ablated or there are, are um, you know, uh, remnant valves.
0: Right. So, uh, so we do very. I did. We had a prune belly uh, recently. It was the last vesicostomy I've done in so many years. I think with the instrumentation, we're pretty good. So, if we get a little guy like we have one right now, who's know a 29 weeker and now, now we're just getting him to just grow and usually by 36 37 weeks we've been able to um get the nine french scope in the urethra um so and and the uh, if i'm not mistaken i'm not here to sell storts or wool or anything else yeah. You know, some of the companies, um, you know, you got to look at the optics, um, I, you know, may you rest in peace, but it, I don't know if it, many of you remember Gordon McClory. Uh, he he was wonderful. And I learned about the Wolf scope, and it revolutionized my life in, in doing valve resection. And this was before indirect vision. Um, so I, I think that um, uh, the need for vesicostomy is only if you can't get your instrument in and you really just want to move forward and not... Mm. To send them back to the NICU and bring them back, you know, three weeks later. So to move them along, I don't think, I don't think that we did many, many vesicostomies because of the instrumentation years ago. I I did. And and I think that we uh, did well with them and we closed and did the valve resection. The kids did reasonably well.
1: That's that's great to hear. And then one last question um, is: What is your protocol for antibiotic prophylaxis in these um, in these patients?
0: Yeah, I keep people. I'm I'm a little heavy-handed on the antibiotics, but I came from the you know continuous antibiotic uh, prophylaxis um, uh, folks because I also I I was the generation that learned from Gene Smelly, um, S M E L L I E. Uh, back in the 70s, of, of treating each infection as it happens. When I mean, you look how bad these kidneys are to begin with, they don't need another hint. They don't need a polynephritis. So, if I can do my best to avoid that, plus the fact most of our um, valve, my valve um, um, population is um, uncircumcised and ethnically, they don't want a circumcision. They want to look like their brother and their dad. So I'm not interestingly um, I'm not a big uh, foreskin uh, evangelist with regard to circumcision mm-hmm. in, in any part of my practice, and I I think that um, I, I do know that it does certainly affect this, um, but only once in my career have I recommended circumcision. That was with massive bilateral grade five reflux. Mm-hmm. And I really thought that that was the time to do it. But I think that if you keep them on preventative, we've not seen um, the foreskin playing a huge role. I think if we took them off, they would be at higher risk. And the other thing that I do with actually all my kids who have all these kids, anybody who's got a polynephritis at an early age, we get them on beta cream and we start you know, doing foreskin manipulation, so to speak, um, not forcibly, but with the betamethasone cream, because if you're able to expose the inner prepuce and get it cleaned up with each diaper change, you may be converting that patient to a more uh, circumcision um, infectious status, and so that's part of the regimentarian um, versus circumcision. I, I, also, the other um, thing I want to just comment, of course, they could also always be circumcised at another time, but after the valve resection and passing the scopes and looking this, that, and the other, you know, the, the PrEP use is pretty worn out. So, mm-hmm. uh, and some of these babies are are small, and so they're not getting circumcised in the hospital, and we don't really want to put them to sleep for
1: another operation. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, thanks again for an awesome lecture and amazing review of this important high yield topic. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Um, If you want to.